0: your bibles to luke chapter 17 and we're going to be reading from verses 11 to 19 and as john so faithfully reminds us every sunday um, this is god's word this isn't my word this isn't john's word or aaron's or ken's this is god's authoritative word so I want to read it and come under its authority. And as Bart Lipscomb faithfully reminded me, "This is the most important thing I'm going to say to you in the rest of this sermon. This, this is the most important part." So let's hear it with that anticipation. It says this, starting in verse 11: "On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, I pray I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, Lord, that you would communicate your truth to your people this morning. Lord, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth would be faithful and true, Lord, that only truths about you would be remembered and taken to heart. Please help us, Lord. We need you to open our eyes and open our ears to see your glory by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I have one main point for us this morning on that topic of gratitude, as I hope you saw in the passage, and here's the point that we're going to be looking at. God's grace compels us to gratefulness. That's what we're going to see in this story. God's grace compels us, pushes us towards gratefulness. And so we're going to see that as we walk through this story. So the first thing I want to point out in this story is just that opening line which I think if you're just reading casually, I know I'm tempted to just skip right past it. But it says this, on the way to Jerusalem. He was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So one thing we notice is Jesus is in between Israel and not Israel. Galilee is part of Israel, Samaria is not part of Israel. So he's passing between the Jewish and the non-Jewish. And He's on his way to Jerusalem. This is not just any trip to Jerusalem. He didn't just casually commute in there. It's it's intentional that Luke points this out for us. This is his final trip to Jerusalem. This is that final trip where upon entering that city, he will be hailed as the Davidic king, the promised Messiah coming in, the palm branches will be thrown out, and shouts of Hosanna will greet him as he enters the city. And then within a week of entering the city, he will be crucified Unjustly between two robbers by the Romans. So it's not an accident that Luke reminds us here in the start of this story where Jesus is headed. And I think that's intentional because this story points to that story. This story is here to tell us something about that story. One of the thoughts I had as I've looked at this story and, and other stories, and John helped us as we were going through Mark to read it as one story. There's, there's not an accidental uh, I think our children's Bibles can be unhelpful if we just read them as a bunch of random stories about what Jesus did. And that's, that's easy because we start segmenting, and oh, this story's about this, and this story's about this. And no, when we read it in a full context, we get to see, oh, it's all pointing somewhere. It's all going somewhere. So this story that we're looking at points to the reason Christ was heading to Jerusalem. What we learn about Jesus here with these 10 lepers is going to help us grasp what it is that he's going to Jerusalem to do. And if we pay attention, we'll see how we ought to respond to what he's doing. So as we keep going, it says, and as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Now, I, I don't think we have a cultural category for the type of dejection that these lepers must have felt. So leprosy was a term used to describe various skin diseases that according to the Old Testament law, the law laid down by Moses, this disqualified people from participation among God's people. They were, they were pushed out of the city. Leviticus chapter 13 points out what, what it meant to get this disease, what it meant to be a leprous person. In verse 45 it says this, The leprous person... Who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So, what do we see here? according to the law, not only did these people have a wasting disease in their skin, but there was no comfort for them in their disease. They were deathly sick and hopelessly cut off. That's what it meant to live with this disease. So try to, try to think of that. Think of the shame. And think of the despair. You don't have your family around you to comfort you in this disease. You're all alone and hopeless. You're cut off from God's people because of this. This was what these people were experiencing. And I don't think it's far-fetched to imagine these people might have had normal lives before their disease. Maybe they had families. Maybe they'd been well-respected members of their community. And then this disease strikes, and that's all gone, In a moment, they're cast out of the city. Their old lives, they're not allowed in. They're no longer welcome home. That's what leprosy meant. Instead of being welcomed in, everyone avoids them. And think of this, they must announce their uncleanness wherever they go. So wherever they're going, people are looking at them and see them as lepers and hear of this wasting disease. Don't get too close to these people. You see in the passage that they're standing far off calling to Jesus. That's where they're at in life. And their only company is people who are as broken and hopeless as they are. That's these 10 lepers outside the city, alone, outside the camp, and then they hear about Jesus. If anyone can heal them, this Jesus can. This is the Jesus who fed 5,000 people. This is the one who cast demons out of people, who calmed storms. If anyone can help them, it's Jesus, and here he is, walking into their village, what, what else would they do? They call out to him, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Jesus, don't, don't leave us here. Don't leave us alone. Don't leave us outside the camp. And here we see the compassion of Jesus. Full display. When he saw them. Notice that. Verse 14, when he saw them. Jesus doesn't ask who they are. He doesn't force them to beg louder or beg longer. It says, when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. <laughs> he responds immediately to their plea. Now, what Jesus tells them to do may seem a little bit weird to our ears, but Leviticus 14 tells us that in order for healed lepers, lepers who experienced healing, in order to be declared clean, they needed to go before the priests and let God's priests observe them and do the necessary cleansing sacrifices to welcome them back in. So he's telling them, in essence, go do what cleansed lepers do. Only God's priest can declare a leper clean. But in saying this, he's saying, go do. Step out in faith. Go do what cleansed lepers do. And what happens? And as they went, they were cleansed in an instant, this is miraculous, this is extraordinary. Don't leave this in the children's storybook Bible in a nice little cute cartoon story. These were 10 actual lepers, 10 actual people actually cut off from God's people and they were actually healed in an instant. This wasn't just nice of Jesus. He didn't just give them medicine to make it more bearable. He heals them. This divine act of healing took walking pretty much dead people who had been cast out of their homes, who had functionally lost their lives and livelihood to this disease. And in an instant, Jesus welcomes them home. He invited them back in. He gave them life when they had lost all hope of living. And who knows how long they'd been lepers. Maybe it had been decades. In an instant, they're invited back into the camp. They're invited back home. And here we see a surprising response. Nine lepers obediently go and show themselves to the priests. And one leper doesn't follow the nine. Look down at your Bibles. Verse 15, then one of them When he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And here's a surprise. He was a Samaritan. Now, why do we need to know that this man was a Samaritan? I don't think this is Luke just sharing random facts about who was there. We see Jesus draws attention to this fact As well, as we keep going, it it seems, I think, based on the attention that's drawn to this, that this miraculous healing, while important, isn't the main point of this story. So who were the Samaritans? Why is this... Helpful. Well, the ESV Study Bible helps us out a little bit in telling us the history of the Jews and Samaritans. Here's what it says. The Samaritans were a racially mixed group of partly Jewish and partly Gentile, non-Jewish ancestry, who were disdained by both Jews and non-Jews. Tensions often ran high between Jews and Samaritans. Thus, Josephus recounts fighting between Jews and Samaritans during Claudius' reign in the first century AD being so intense that Roman soldiers were called in to pacify and even crucify many of the rebels. That was how intense this fighting was getting between the Jews and the Gentiles. So there's this intense animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Jews didn't talk with Samaritans. Samaritans did not talk with Jews. And as John 4.9 notes for us, there's actually parentheticals in there. It says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is an important point for us to know. So there's this intense animosity between Jews and Samaritans and yet here comes this Samaritan falling at the feet of a Jewish rabbi. We see Jesus himself drawing attention to this response in verse 17. He says, Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this this foreigner? Except this Samaritan? This non-Jew? Now I don't think this was a surprise to Jesus. So why does he draw attention to this fact? What's his point? What was different from this for this Samaritan that caused him to turn back when the other 9 went on? Well, this is again where I think children's storybook Bible thinking can be unhelpful because if we read this story by itself, we do get the point of a grateful person who's miraculously healed, but we might miss some of the broader context of Luke 17 that I think in this case can be very helpful. So what's the context of this story? It might surprise you because it surprised me. What comes right before this story? Right before this story, Luke recounts a very, in my opinion, odd parable told by Jesus. And Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says this, starting verse 7. Talking to his disciples, he says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank his servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty." In this parable, Jesus has just told his disciples that they can't earn anything by being obedient to God. In the same way that a servant doesn't earn thanksgiving and praise for simply doing his job, neither do we earn anything from God by obeying him. We were made to obey him. What's the best we can get from obeying God? Good job doing your job. That's what you were made to do, obey the Lord. You were made to be holy as your God is holy. So how can we earn? We can't earn anything, By obedience, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, why do I bring this up? How does this apply to these 10 lepers? How does this inform our understanding of this grateful Samaritan? Well, because Jesus recognizes Samaritan as someone unique among the lepers, and because of his command for them to show themselves to the priests, which is a tie to the Mosaic promise, I think we can assume the majority of these lepers were Jewish. And if the Jews were God's chosen people, perhaps the other nine lepers were not surprised that Jesus healed them. Is that about that? He's the Jewish Messiah. Of course he's going to heal us. We're Jews. We're God's people. Are they grateful? Sure. But are they surprised? Probably not. Perhaps these nine lepers assumed that Jesus would heal them and therefore were not overly grateful when their assumption was correct. But whatever reason, the other nine, we don't get to hear what they're thinking. Whatever reason they had for not returning to Jesus, we can look at this one leper who did return and I think get the point because he's a Samaritan. Not only is he sick, he's an enemy. Of the Jews. He's an enemy of the Jews who has no claim upon the kindness of this Jewish rabbi. Not only is he a leper, a social outcast, but he's also aware that Jesus has no reason to heal him. This Samaritan has never done anything for Jesus, and he couldn't even claim Jewish shared heritage as a reason for Jesus to heal him. This Samaritan, here's the point, understood how much Jesus didn't owe him anything. And yet, Jesus healed him. In a moment, this Samaritan understood the weight of God's grace towards him. The one who was an enemy and desperately sick was healed and welcomed home. This Samaritan encountered the grace of God. And his response to God's grace, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back. Praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He's undone. He loudly praises God for this miracle that has healed him, and he comes running to Jesus and falls on his face in humble adoration at the feet of Jesus. This is not a token thank you note. This is unabashed gratitude and worship. This Samaritan rightly understood what has just happened and Jesus commends him for it. Here's what he says. Were not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Were the Jews not ready to come back and, and thank him? And he said to them, he said to him, the Samaritan, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Friends, it was appropriate for this Samaritan, when he had encountered God's grace, to come running to Jesus in gratitude and loud worship. And in the same way, it's appropriate for us, when we have encountered God's grace in our lives, to go running. In fact, it, I think it's more appropriate for us. For we have seen the story that this one only points to. Like this Samaritan, we were sick and hopeless. And had no claim upon his kindness, but only deserved his judgment because we were also at enmity with God. Just like the Samaritan, you notice he's not just sick, he's an enemy of God and that represents us We're sick, we're hopeless, we're despairing, and yet we also have no hope of change because we're at enmity. Our rebellion and sin stands between us and the Father. And in our deadly sickness and rebellion, Christ, when he saw us, healed us when we cried for mercy, not because of our righteousness, not because of anything that we had done, but because of his glorious compassion and grace. This story begins with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem where he would die outside the city so that those outside could be brought This story points to the reason that Jesus was going to Jerusalem in the first place. He took our shame, our sin, our rebellion, and he placed it on himself so that as he died, so did our death. Because of Christ, we are healed from sin. Because of Christ, we are forgiven for our rebellion. Because of Christ, we can be welcomed home and invited into the family of God and given the perfection of Christ as our own. If you have repented of your sin, if you've turned away and turned to Jesus saying with these lepers, Jesus, master, have mercy on me, then the same power that cleansed these lepers can cleanse you from all your sin, past, present, future. And Jesus himself welcomes you back into the camp, not because you're good, but because he is good. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what it means to be a Christian. Nothing less. That is the good news. This is God's grace on full display. If a miraculous healing of leprosy, think of this. If a miraculous healing of leprosy drove this Samaritan to fall on his face, how much more should this merciful forgiveness of sin compel us to sing praises to our king and to fall on our faces before him as we remember his great loving kindness to us. This is the gospel. This is good news. This is God's grace. Gratitude grows when we comprehend this grace, when we think about what this means. So looking at this story, I have two points of application for us today. As we look back on 2023 and we look forward to 2024, how can we grow in gratitude? And I just have two simple points that both start with R, so I hope you remember these. Remember and respond. Remember. Remember what God's grace means. And sometimes, as a church kid, I can definitely say this, I think we understand grace wrongly. Not because we're taught wrongly, we just hear wrongly. Sometimes we misunderstand grace. We can treat God's grace like the nine lepers who went on their way. Nice, helpful, miraculous even, but not surprising. And I think we often assume that we're somehow entitled to the love of God. Maybe that's because we're American. Maybe that's because we grew up in a church. We feel entitled because we're here and of course God loves me. That's who. That's God's job. He loves people. That's what he does. Entitlement, let me say this. Entitlement, feeling like you deserve God's grace does not breed gratitude. When we think that what we deserve is God's favor, we aren't grateful when we see it, but we grumble when we don't see it. Let me say that again. When we think we deserve God's favor, we're not grateful when we see it, but we grumble when we don't see it. I think author Jerry Bridges helps us understand God's grace in a better light. Here's what he says in a book, Transforming Grace, which please everyone read that book. Grace is God's free and unmerited, undeserved favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. It is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. That's God's grace. Reaching out to those who do not deserve it, have no claim upon it, and could never convince God that it would be a good idea. This is God's, all by his goodness and kindness and compassion to dead sinners. And get this, salvation isn't the end of God's grace, but the foundation and beginning of it. Romans 8.22 points this out for us. It says, what, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And, and hear this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, if, if his grace goes that far, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. In his sacrifice for us, Jesus showed us just how far God's grace reaches towards us, reaching uttermost into our sin, into our darkness. And if God's Son, if God the Son, was willing to die in our place, is he not willing to walk with us in our weakness? Is he not willing to hear our prayers and give us all that we need for life and godliness? if while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, as Romans 5 tells us, then we can rely on the grace of God as our standing before him. When we sin, we may run to Jesus in prayer, pleading his grace for our forgiveness and praising him for the great salvation that he has bought for us, knowing we didn't do anything to earn it and we will never do anything to deserve it. An accurate comprehension and understanding of the grace of God compels our hearts towards gratitude because an accurate understanding of God's grace confronts us both with our own sin and rebellion but all the more with Christ's undeserved kindness and forgiveness towards us. C. J. Mahaney puts it this way in in writing about the practice of gratitude. He says this, "'Let each of us recognize every day "'that whatever grace we receive from God "'is so much more than we're worthy of "'and indescribably better than the hell we all deserve. "'Let each of us recognize every day "'whatever grace we receive from God is so much more than we're worthy of, and indescribably better than the hell we all deserve. Now, this is not just the power of positive thinking or looking at the glass half full. Well, things could be worse. That's not what we're talking about here. This is staring at the reality of your own sinfulness, but the ever greater reality of the good news that Jesus has paid for all your sins. Does that not compel us towards gratitude? No matter what comes our way, that compels us. As sinners, we deserve God's wrath, but in his kindness and love, our redemption was bought with Christ's blood. Come pain or sorrow, we still have a hope of eternal life in heaven. We still have the hope of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the presence of God with us in our sufferings. Hebrews 13 says it this way, starting in verse five, it says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Why? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. This is the grace of God. If God is with us, who can be against us? Come pain, come sorrow, come sickness, whatever comes, we have this hope. And that spurs us on into gratitude to the Lord, this understanding of grace compels us toward gratitude even in the midst of our greatest suffering. And my friends, we're in a world of suffering. Evil still happens. We live in a fallen world. The risen Christ has not come back and set everything right. But even in the midst of all the pain, all the sorrow that can come, this grace compels us to gratitude even then. Are you suffering this morning? Do you feel the weight of living in a sin-scarred, fallen world? Let your mind dwell upon the grace of God. Dwell on the mercy of Christ Jesus. His grace gives you strength to continue in gratefulness as you think on his great kindness and love toward you, shown at the cross but not only does grace compel gratefulness in the midst of sorrow, but it also multiplies gratefulness when we experience God's blessing. My friends, if we don't deserve salvation, what ought we to do with the extra blessings that God gives us beyond that? God's grace already reminds us we don't earn anything from him, and yet we see countless blessings entering our lives after salvation, joyful friendships, divine healings at times, and skilled physicians and others, even physical gifts like monetary savings and, dare I say, church properties. We didn't deserve that. We didn't earn that. We didn't work hard towards it. We don't deserve any of these things. We couldn't even earn our own salvation, and the kindness of God towards undeserving sinners should make us the most grateful people that have ever lived. Gratefulness should mark our lives and be evident to those around us. The first way we can cultivate gratefulness is by remembering the grace of God in truth, not making up ways we earned it or deserved it. No, remembering the undeserved, unmerited favor of God towards us in Christ. Remember. The grace of God. And secondly, respond appropriately to God's grace. Understanding God's grace is a call to action. Look at this Samaritan leper. He didn't just understand God's grace towards him, he could have just walked on with the nine and said, Wow, God was so gracious to me, and just keep walking. He didn't. He responded to it. And we should too. We should desire to respond appropriately to the grace of God. And taking our cues from this leper, I think a good start for responding appropriately is just these two words that might make us uncomfortable. Loud praise and grateful worship. Loud praise. Now, loud praise is highly appropriate for singing. But this kind of praise goes far beyond a Sunday morning worship service. Do you want people, here's the question, do you want people to hear you praising God? Do you want them to hear you? Loud praise, here's what it does. It invites others to join you in your worship. That's not just singing, that's in life. It's in all that you do. Does your life loudly proclaim the goodness of God? Do people look at you and see God's goodness upon you and your gratitude towards your Savior in everything that you do? An accurate understanding of God's grace. You can't just drum this up. You can't pretend to be grateful towards God. An accurate understanding of God's grace will drive our gratefulness, and our gratefulness should be directed towards our great Savior and King. Unlike generic, generalized greeting cards at Thanksgiving, we're not just randomly grateful to different people across the universe. We are grateful to our king specifically and that should be loudly proclaimed because it invites others to see his goodness loud praise and secondly grateful worship we see this leper fall on his face before jesus giving him thanks my friends when was the last time that gratitude to jesus had you on your face before him whether physically or mentally, in whatever way you're able to, have you been floored by the grace of God? This amazing grace of God calls us to respond in grateful worship and singing, and again, in action. Our gratitude compelled by God's grace leads us into loud praise and grateful worship. Jesus told this leper to rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And actually, that's a similar phrase to Mark 10, 52, when Jesus heals a blind man and tells him the same thing. He says, Mark 10, go go your way. Your faith has made you well. You know what happens? And immediately, he, the the, the blind man, recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Rise and go your way. Blind man gets up and follows Jesus. Going your way, going on his way, doing what he would do meant now following Jesus. Why would he go anywhere else? Why would he not want to be where his savior was? An appropriate response to God's grace is a grateful life of worship that says, Lord, you have bought me with your blood and won me by your love. What would you have me do? Where would you call me? You call me to stay? I'll stay. Would you call me to go? I'll go. Who do you want me to talk to? Is it this awkward conversation at the grocery store? Okay. Is it encouraging this brother or sister in trial? Okay. Is it gratefully serving in the back where nobody sees? Lord, I'll do it because you're there too. And that's what we're called to do. And we are compelled by it, by an understanding of God's grace. One final application point here. This gratitude is not age-restricted. We don't hear how old this Samaritan was. For all we know, he could have been a kid. I don't know. He might have been. We don't hear his age. So I wanted to ask, wherever you're at, kids, 12 and younger, God's grace is there for you. In your sin and rebellion, you can be forgiven. And you can be grateful to the Lord and serve him as an 8-year-old, 12-year-old Teenagers, I'm looking at the young guys just to make them uncomfortable a little bit. Do you guys remember what I told you at youth? False masculine indifference. It's kind of this cool idea that it's cool to not be super excited about anything and yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah. Nothing's quite too exciting. My friends, this is the time to get excited. God's grace is this exciting. Older men, dare I say, we suffer from false masculine indifference. It's easy to not get too excited because it seems unmanly. David danced, and as John has told us, he was probably more manly than most of us. (laughs) Mothers, are you grateful for God's grace? Do you see his goodness? And do you show that to your kids and to your friends? Young women, are you serving with your grace and your gratefulness to the Lord for his grace. Remember God's grace. Remember how he showed it to this leper who deserved nothing from him. And respond with this leper, loud praise and grateful worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of loud praise and grateful worship. Lord, we are a room full of lepers. Lord, we are a room full of people that were far from you, at enmity with you, and desperately sick and hopeless in our sin. And Lord Jesus, when you saw us, you had compassion on us. Not because of our goodness, but because of your great love. And so, Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit, which you have promised to all who believe, Lord, I pray that by that spirit, Lord, you would empower within us grateful hearts, gratitude, loud singing and praising, Lord, and lives that would go out from here, honoring you, praising you loudly. It's all by your grace, all by your mercy and kindness. We love you, Lord. Receive our honor in praise in Christ's name we pray